Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. President Trump is said to be ready with a major speech on immigration. He'll give it tomorrow at the White House. The president has made immigration a key issue again before the midterm elections. On Twitter today, President Trump blames Democrats for letting cop killers into the country in a new ad. The head of the Democratic National Committee called it dog whistle politics based on fear-mongering. Many people are saying it's worse than the Willie Horton ad against Michael Dukakis. Demonizing asylum seekers is a regular occurrence at Trump rallies. Here is the president of the United States spelling it out for supporters in a something he's called a snake poem. And this is the president at a rally in Harrisburg a year ago. Who has heard the poem called The Snake? So I have it. Does anybody want to hear it again? You sure? Are you sure? This was written by Al Wilson a long time ago. And I thought of it having to do with our borders and people coming in. We have to very, very carefully vet. We have to be smart. We have to be vigilant. So here it is, the snake. It's called the snake. On her way to work one morning, down the path along the lake, a tender-hearted woman saw a poor half-frozen snake. His pretty colored skin had been all frosted with the dew. Poor thing, she cried, I'll take you in and I'll take care of you. The border. Take me in, O tender woman. Take me in for heaven's sake. Take me in, O tender woman, sighed the vicious snake. She wrapped him up all cozy in a comforter of silk and laid him by her fireside with some honey and some milk. She hurried home from work that night, and as soon as she arrived, she found that pretty snake she'd taken in had been revived. Take me in, O tender woman. Take me in, for heaven's sake. Take me in, O tender woman, sighed that vicious snake. She clutched him to her bosom. You're so beautiful, she cried. But if I hadn't brought you in by now, oh heavens, you would have died. She stroked his pretty skin again and kissed him and held him tight. But instead of saying, Thank you. That snake gave her a vicious bite. I have saved you, cried the woman. And you've bitten me, heavens, why? You know your bite is poisonous, and now I'm going to die. Oh, shut up, silly woman said the reptile with a grin. You knew damn well I was a snake before you took me in. That's President Trump a year ago at a rally in Harrisburg. He's been reciting that poem at rallies 
before he was president and uh, during his presidency at uh, conventions. And today on Twitter, President Trump blamed Democrats for letting cop killers into the country in a new ad. With me to talk about what's happening with asylum seekers is Trinidad Sanchez. He's former director of the Honduras-based Red Comal. It's a network of rural communities that promotes human rights, rule of law, and social justice for poor farmers in Honduras. And he's just back from Honduras. Thanks for joining me, Trini. Thank you, Jerome. Uh, Thank you, everybody. You know, I I wanted to ask you about, you know, the depiction of people here. Uh, The president is depicting uh, people who come to the border as vicious snakes. He is calling them cop killers. Um, Who are the Hondurans that you see leaving the country and trying to get to the U.S.? That's the big question. Who's the snake in this context, in this sun? Um, I know the people who are fleeing right now are very very good workers, are um, people with good values, and just wanted to survive the situations over there. And um, I would say what people really need is a respect to a cultural heritage. They need employment. They need peace in, in, our, in their world, in our world. So um, if we meet these three conditions, people won't, won't come to the United States, never will come. If we respect the cultural heritage, we uh, procure to give them employment in a world with peace. People will stay home. Uh, can, can you give us a little idea of what's going on in Honduras? You were just there. Yeah, I just returned with the, uh, from there last Sunday. Um, yeah, what's it's a huge crisis. Um, and um, I myself have been there because I, I was raised in Honduras and I know the situation there. I was expecting that one day was going to explode this situation because the uh, the immigration from Honduras is, is more than 10 years um, since the 1990s when we cut the agrarian reform law that provoked the first migration from the countryside to the cities and then the privatization of services uh, <clears throat> the health education and um, I think we have been given wrong economic recipes to Central America. That's why uh, we are now harvesting. It's a bitter harvest that we are having. So right now, we, after the coup d'etat in 2009, the last uh, eight years, uh, the poor have become more poor. Miserable, 80% of the population is, uh, is, is poor. And there is a lot of repression also. <clears throat> the last wrong recipe in, uh, here with the U.S. companies, Canadian companies, is to take over the countries um, extracting uh, natural resources. Um, there have been 800 concessions of rivers and uh, water shells to explode minerals. And you know what I mean. Now, that sounds amazing. 800 concessions given to... And Honduras is a small country. Exactly. And it's a very small country. Um, 800 concessions. And uh, some people think that they could have that. Uh, that was the main reason, is to open the door for mineral, mineral exploitation. 
But at the same time, the country was so weak that led the narco-traffic coming together. So um, those two things have increased um, the level of repression and level of violence. And um, I don't know you heard that three days ago, one of the communities in Tokoa was forcibly violently uh, displaced from their um, demonstration. They had a demonstration in a community called Cuapinol. They're trying to protect um, a park, a natural park in there. And one of the, um, the, the company uh, and, and the Honduran army in a, a success, 1,500 soldiers were displaced to that community um, to push out the people from the demonstration who were taking um, care of the park. There have been cases, Jerome, and people who were minerals are under cemeteries, like a case in Copan, where the company is going to uh, take out the bodies from there. They move the cemetery from there because there is gold and silver over there. So this reminds me 500 years ago when the Spaniards came looking for gold. It's the same thing. And um, the only recipe now is uh, look for gold and for silver and exploit natural resources. And there is no democracy. There is not, nobody is listening to what people are saying in the communities. And uh, it's, uh, the popular movement have been saying for 30 years, let's review the free trade agreement, for example. Let's protect the cultural heritage that people have had uh, People know how to harvest rice, beans, and corn, and uh, let's do that. Let's, let's, let's offer a piece of land to the people, and they will go back, I'm 100% sure. I'm talking with Trini Sanchez. He's a former director of the Honduras-based Red Comal, a network of rural communities that promotes human rights, rule of law, and social justice for poor farmers. And we're talking about uh, what's happening in Honduras. He was just there. You know, you describe a situation that's very different from the one I think we hear most depicted about Honduras, which is just gangs or organized crime. It's just crime and organized gangs, and that's what's uh, driving people away. It sounds like it's a little more complex than that. It is more complex. Uh, Listen, Jerome, we have um, a population of um, close to 10 million people, and uh, 3 million of those are in the age of working, working age, let's say from 18 years to 40 years old. Those are the people with all the potential to be full employing in Honduras. But uh, half of that are immigrants now. In the last, uh, they have immigrated in the last two decades. They have left the country. And uh, so we have one, one million and a half uh, people with, uh, will be, we should be employed there. In a state that is not capable, capable to employ a million people in their own country, I think it's a failure. It's a complete failure. failure. And, um, and the reason is because um, this first thing I mentioned, the cultural heritage, we forgot about that. 
At the beginning of the 90s, uh, we, um, we entered this opening the borders to the globalization. And um, I think there are good things in globalization. But when you don't protect your own harvest, your own crops, you are exposing yourself to be an immigrant. And that's what happened in Honduras. Those were agricultural countries, Central America are agricultural countries. And what people know to do is agriculture. They, they know how and to do agriculture. So uh, we, at the beginning of the 90s, we cut, we eliminated all the agrarian law that will permit people to have land. And then, um, besides of that, and the economist uh, advisor said that we are going to have maquilas to uh, give employment to the rural population. That was a big mistake. Why? Because we created those, um, those ghost cities that don't have water, don't have, uh, I mean, drinking water, don't have a life of uh, housing, uh, education services, uh, medical services. We are talking about Villanueva, Choloma, La Lima, Cortez. Those are towns that were created for the maquila workers that didn't have conditions. And mostly were for young people uh, who came to work in those maquilas. I don't know if the term maquilas, what well, you know is assembly sure. lines for industrial assembly lines. That was the first immigration, internal migration we have, forming those cities where there were in conditions for uh, workers to stay. So thousands of young people came to uh, those towns, uh, Choloma, La Lima, and um, Villanueva, practically living in the streets uh, and, uh, or living at uh, 10 people in one room. And that was a perfect, uh, um, a, a perfect uh, reason for the drugs and dealers to come and and start working with that. Because poverty and misery is the, is a fertile land for for drugs and for for drug dealers. Trinidad Sanchez is a former director of Honduras-based Red Comal, a network of rural communities that promotes human rights, rule of law, and social justice for poor farmers. Thanks for joining us and giving us an alternative reading on what's happening in Honduras. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about how faith communities are countering the white nationalist narrative. I'm Jerome McDonnell. You're listening to WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Last week, the massacre at the synagogue, the killing of black shoppers, the bomb threats to Democrats made it feel like the country was coming apart at the seams. 
But the white nationalist narrative is being countered by communities of faith across the country. With me is Ibu Patel. He's founder of the Interfaith Youth Corps. His most recent book is Out of Many Faiths, Religious Diversity and the American Promise. Nice to see you, Ibu. It's great to be back with you, Jerome. Um, Now, I know you had a personal connection to Squirrel Hill and have been in touch with people there. Well, uh, this uh, this incident has affected me very deeply in part because my father-in-law was a housing consultant in Pittsburgh for many years, and my wife and I would visit the beautiful city, and we'd hang out in the Squirrel Hill neighborhood. And actually, uh, one one summer when we were hanging out there, we saw an advertisement for a film called Paperclips, which is about a middle school in rural, a very white, very Christian Tennessee that wanted to do a project that uh, uh, affected their students about the horrors of the Holocaust and did a project where their students collected millions of paperclips uh, as a way of reckoning with um, with the terror of, of those days. And uh, they actually had a, a German rail car shipped to Whitwell, Tennessee that had been used uh, in, in Hitler's death camps. And these kids put together this remarkable memorial. I remember uh, sitting in that theater with tears in my eyes and the the film affected me so much that uh, that it became the opening scene to my first book, Acts of Faith. And I just think to myself, like, if we had those educational programs for for people like Robert Bowers, um, this wouldn't have happened. And and there's eleven paperclips on my desk right now um, commemorating the souls in Pittsburgh. Tell people might, might not know what the Interfaith Youth Corps is. Tell us what it does, and tell me it's being really successful. Well, uh, you know, I'm proud of what we're doing at IFYC, and, and Jerome, I'm, I'm I'm grateful to you for the role that you and Steve and your team here at Worldview played 15, 16 years ago when IFYC was just getting started. It was basically uh, uh, just a handful of us literally renting a house in Albany Park to get to get this thing off the ground. And now we're an organization that works with a network of 500 college campuses to help those college campuses become what we call ecosystems of interfaith cooperation and training grounds for interfaith leaders. And how wonderful was it to uh, meet one of your program team here, uh, uh, Vivian Garcia, who said, hey, I was a Dominican University student who came to Interfaith Youth Corps programs. And so that's that's our work in the world. And uh, in connection to this terrible incident in, in Squirrel Hill, I just got an email from a student at Harvard, actually, who's been through some of IFYC's programs. And he said that he was leading an interfaith team from Harvard to Pittsburgh to sit Shiva, uh, which is the, the, the a Jewish ritual around mourning and death. Um, with the Pittsburgh families. And so there's so much inspiring interfaith activity that's happening uh, um, around this terrible incident. And and one of the reasons that that activity uh, is able to happen is precisely because of the kinds of networks, interfaith networks that have been built in the past 15 or 18 years. And IFYC is proud to have uh, inspired a set of young leaders from college campuses to go be those bridge builders. You're the largest interfaith organization in the hemisphere now. Probably, um, you know, we we a network of 500 college campuses, uh, a robust budget of of eight million dollars, um, uh, a staff uh, in the range of about 40, and on any given day, our folks are on a half dozen college campuses helping the faculty start interfaith studies programs, helping uh, college staff run uh, interfaith dialogue and service programs, inspiring students to be interfaith leaders, working with college presidents 
presidents to develop interfaith strategic plans. So you can check out more at ifyc.org. And I, we want to be part of a movement that continues to grow. And this Chicago is a great city to do it in because it's uh, it's the birthplace of the interfaith movement in the Western Hemisphere. So we feel very connected to Chicago history in doing this work. You're talking about the Parliament of the World's Religions and everything else. That's right. 1893, um, uh, in a major event as part of the Columbian Exposition in Chicago. Uh, the kind of mission statement of that event uh, was, uh, from now on, the great religions of the world make war no longer on each other and instead on the giant ills that afflict humankind. Uh, the organizers of the event say that at the end. And the most famous figure at the parliament was a man named uh, Swami Vivekananda, a young monk from India. A Hindu monk who comes to uh, the site that is now Fullerton Hall at the Art Institute. And if you walk through the Lions on Michigan Avenue, uh, go through the entrance gate and take a sharp left, you'll find yourself where Swami Vivekananda gave his opening speech on spiritual unity on September 11th, 1893. I'm talking with Ibu Patel, and he's the author most recently of Out of Many Faiths. He is also the co-founder of the Interfaith Youth Corps, the founder of the Interfaith Youth Corps. And I wanted to ask you some questions about your book, because I found it a really interesting read in this time that we're living in. Um, it was it had a lot of ups and downs. It was a roller coaster. One of the up parts is um, the beginning, the founding of our country, and how tenaciously the founders really wanted freedom of religion. We all we all kind of know this about our country, but to read it in your book and to hear about things Ben Franklin did, it was inspiring. It was good to hear. You know, the, uh, the United States, for all of its uh, flaws and mistakes and sins, and they are legion is a really special country. And one of the reasons for that is because we are the world's first religiously diverse democracy. Uh, political philosophers from the time of the Greeks thought that that our society was impossible. Uh, they believed that, uh, that uh, no ethnic, religious, racial group would ever allow somebody from a different ethnic, religious, or racial group to serve uh, as as its leader unless it was a dictator, a dictatorship. Uh, so you could have a religiously diverse uh, empire, but you could never, or a religiously diverse monarchy, but you could never religiously diverse democracy. And we're the first nation to to prove them wrong. And when you read George Washington saying, the bosom of America is open to the oppressed and persecuted of every nation and religion, when you have a sense that that what our founders believe for all of their flaws and sins and mistakes, that they believe that this could be a place where people from the four corners of the earth, praying to God in different ways, including not at all, could come to a patch of land and build out of it a nation. That is remarkable, right? And I feel connected to that story, and I feel that it is important for us to write the next chapter. Right now, we're being told a different story. And it seems a lot of the time the downside is the different story seems to be winning. And you've got a section of the book on – the Cordova House situation, which was people will probably recall it more as the Ground Zero Mosque, which was, it was redefined as by by Fox News and some of these uh, people you mentioned in the book. Um, and I thought, well, I'm going to read this, but I, I, I already know the story. But it was kind of uh, it's a direct line to the people in the White House today. It's a direct line to um, this politics that we're seeing. 
it was kind of startling to me to go back and look at some of the polling after uh, the hysteria about this. And most Americans did not want to see this Islamic community center built near the World Trade Towers. Uh, they thought it was inappropriate. Most people were against um, something that was as basic to us as George Washington, uh, the, the, the freedom of religion, was was not up their alley anymore. Right. Uh, um, you know, it, part of what I, I write about a lot in this book, Out of Many Fates, is how present-day Islamophobia feels so similar to past eras of anti-Catholicism. Uh, anti-Catholicism, the, the great historian Arthur Schlesinger once said, is the deepest bias in the American people. Uh, and there's many communities who have a claim to that crown of deepest bias, but but Catholics are one of them. Uh, in fact, America launches in some ways as an anti-Catholic project. John Winthrop comes to the United States on the Arabella uh, to build a bulwark against the Antichrist, who he said was the Pope. And through a variety of eras in American history, you had various anti-Catholic forces, the know-nothings, the KKK, saying any Catholic institution, any Catholic school or university or hospital or church was uh, uh, a Trojan horse for popery. And other people told a better story. They, they told the story of a Judeo-Christian nation that welcomed the contributions of its Jewish and Catholic minorities. Uh, and that story won. And I think to myself, it is useful as we see people saying we should, we should exclude the Muslim contribution it, to think, you know, what if, what if actually the anti-Catholic forces had won? How they different would really America popular, That know-nothing party you just breezed over, a huge, huge party in Jerome, Congress. They, they had 75 seats in the U.S. Congress in the 1850s. They entire state legislatures, Massachusetts, for example, was filled with know-nothing candidates, many of them write-ins. Anti-Catholicism was, was amongst the central politics of the middle of the 19th century. And if, if they had won, I mean, what about – just here in Chicago, Loyola, DePaul, Dominican, uh, all the Catholic schools in the Chicagoland area, all the Catholic hospitals, right? Imagine a landscape without any of those contributions. Muslims want to be building America. I think about what my friend Rami Nishishibi is doing with the Inner City Muslim Action Network. I think about the fact that the Sears Tower and the John Hancock Building were designed by a Muslim, Right? Do we really not want to welcome the contributions of Muslims and Jews and atheists and Zoroastrians? Isn't isn't this the definition of the nation? I think to myself, the, the American promise is to give dignity to a range of identities. And the American genius is that when you give dignity to different identities, they contribute to the nation. That's our strength. I think one of the scary things about the current narrative is that um, the kind of narrative that Steve Bannon puts out there, we are going to defend Judeo-Christian values. We are going to, it, it sounds like a new crusade that does not include uh, a lot of people. And you you break down the history of Judeo-Christianity in the book, and, and it's not a long one. It's not an ancient thing that we have to defend in crusades uh, in the Middle Ages. It's a newfangled word. I mean, this is 
I, you know, I'm smiling as, as I say this, but uh, when I go to college campuses, I spend a lot of time on college campuses, actually. Uh, one, of the, one of the ways I open my talk is I say, uh, you know, when, uh, when the Mayflower Pilgrims landed on Plymouth Rock and they dusted off the stone, they found the words Judeo-Christian nation etched in it. And all these students who did great on their test scores will look at me, you know, wide-eyed and be like, wow. And then I'll be like, no, that's not how it happened. What actually happened was uh, after the KKK in the 1920s gathered three to four million members, many of them right here in the Midwest, around the idea of white Protestant nation. Uh, and they did everything from terrorize black folks to Jews to Catholics and in particular lit on fire the presidential candidacy of a man named Al Smith, who was the first Catholic to run on a major party ticket for the presidency. A group of who I refer to as interfaith leaders come together and they form an organization called the NCCJ, the National Conference on, uh, for Christians and Jews. And they begin to say, look, we can't have a nation that is xenophobic and racist against blacks, Jews, and and Catholics. We need to have a nation that welcomes their contributions. And they run all these civic projects, tri-faith dialogues and communities across the country and on military bases as in the, in the run-up to World War II. And amongst the, the most effective things they do is they make up a term. They make up a term that gives America a new narrative around its emerging religious diversity in the early part of the 20th century. And that term is Judeo Christian. It's literally made up. It is not theologically accurate. It is not historically accurate. It is an invented term. And it did such good work for 75 years. I would much rather be a Jew in America in 1970 than 1930. And we live at a time in which there are 4 million Muslims in America. That's the same number as ELCA Lutherans. Almost as many Muslims as Methodists and Jews. We live at a time in which there are 4 million Buddhists in America, a growing number of atheists and agnostics and secular humanists. What comes next? That's what we talk about at IFYC. That's what a lot of what my book, Out of Many Fates, is about is what is the next great chapter in the glorious history of America's proactive and positive engagement of religious diversity? And a big part of what IFYC does is it inspires and nurtures young people, college students, to be authors of that next chapter. I'm talking with Ibu Patel. We're discussing some of the ideas in his book, Out of Many Faiths, Religious Diversity, and the American Promise. Um, I I do want to say something about the challenge of this time and being different than than getting Catholics and Jews into the religious mainstream. Um, Whiteness, racism, is that something that's almost... Uh, unovercomable for the uh, for the Muslim community because it's it's um, Muslims come from seventy different countries in this in uh, in this situation and and race is something you just can't be put into the, the white fold entirely. Uh, you know, I I'm too much of an American and too much of a Muslim to think things are overcomeable. Honestly, right? Like like I I was in a I was in Chicago uh, in late 2001, returning from Oxford, where I got my my doctorate, and uh, there was a no name guy who uh, who had gotten trounced 
by a congressman named Bobby Rush in a congressional race in 2000. And there's a couple people I knew who were talking about this guy and then, oh, he's going to run for Senate. And what a crazy idea that is. He should just like, you know, figure out that position at the UFC Law School. And, oh, wow, he's actually running a serious race for Senate. He wins the Senate. There he is on the stage of the DNC. A couple years later, he's in the White House. I mean, like we have seen the impossible happen in this country, in this city, and in this country. I just, I just don't think that there are things that are overcomeable. And frankly, Italians, Irish, Greek—they were not thought of as, as certainly not thought of as Americans, and also not thought of as white when they first came. Right. So I think that the definition of American constantly expands because it is genius enough to welcome the contributions of a range of people. That is what keeps the nation strong. And right now, we need to tell a better story than than the people who are telling an ugly story. And I'm just, I'm too much of a Muslim and American to think that ugly wins in the long run. I think beauty wins in the long run. Talking with Ibu Patel, we'll be back with more after the break. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. I'm talking today with Ibu Patel. He is the founder of the Interfaith Youth Corps, and he's the author of the new book, Out of Many Faiths, Religious Diversity and the American Promise. Um, Ibu, tell us a little more about the interfaith history of Chicago. We were talking a moment ago about the Parliament of the World's Religions and, and, the, and the founding of the interfaith history here, but it's, it's managed to keep a good, steady pace. Right. And, you know, I think, I think interfaith cooperation is one of the most inspiring stories in American history. It literally starts in 1644 with Roger Williams uh, escaping John Winthrop's Massachusetts Bay Colony, going to Rhode Island, learning the language of the local Native American population, doing a study of their cosmology and saying, uh, can't Muslims and Jews and and others uh, uh, be good neighbors, be good business people, be loyal, loyal subjects? Of course they can. All reason and experience tells us that. And if there's one city in American history, I think, that you would say is the city that has advanced interfaith cooperation the most, it's this city. Swami Vivekananda, as I said, comes here in 1893 and is part of this s- extremely important event, the Parliament of the World's Religions. Uh, There's another Parliament of the World's Religions starting right now in Toronto, Canada. We've got staff there from IFYC. I'll be going up there in a couple days myself. This is the city where Martin Luther King Jr. meets the Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, uh, probably his closest interfaith relationship in the civil rights movement. That famous picture uh, uh, from Selma, the great rabbi and the and the great reverend marching together, and Heschel says it felt like my my legs were praying. You know, this is the city where uh, uh, Jane Addams builds Hull House. She calls it a cathedral of humanity, and as so many. 
people are looking at the Jews and the Catholics coming into the United States in the late 19th century and calling them aliens, Jane Addams looks at them and says, you're citizens, and she builds an institution with a whole set of programs that respects the identities of these different people and facilitates their contributions to America. Um, One of my favorite stories uh, about the interfaith history of America happens in 1858 here in Chicago, where Abraham Lincoln gives a speech around July 4th for a July 4th celebration in which he says, you know, this nation is 82 years old now and uh, and so many nations are built on lineage and bloodline and there are some people here who can trace their lineage back to the founders. But – we are a different kind of nation and gathered amongst us now are not just those who trace their, their lineage to the founders, but also those who have come more recently, people from different identities and backgrounds. And I want to say right now that if any of you read the Declaration of Independence and you hold with the ideals of that declaration that all people are created equal, then you are blood of the blood and flesh of the flesh of the men who wrote that document. That's America, right? We are a nation of ideals and not of lineage. We welcome the contributions of all. If you want to join the conversation and talk about religion in America with Ibu Patel, the number is 312-923-9239. That's 312-923-9239. Nine two three nine. Um, one of the things when we look out into the future of America and its interfaith universe, and um, there's people who argue in the back of the book, there are some responses to your book, and one of the people makes a response that uh, white Christian displacement at the head of the interfaith table is going to shake things up, that really – all the time, it's always been the white Protestants who are at the head of the table uh, allowing this love, lovely interfaith thing to happen. And now they're losing their majority and uh, some kind of new thing is going on and they're freaking out. Some of them are freaking out. Um and I think that this is this is the the contribution by by uh, Robert P. Jones. Uh, um, it's one of three response essays at the at the end of this book. Um, and Robert P. Jones is a good friend of mine. He's also the head of the Public Religion Research Institute, which is one of the most prolific of its kind in the nation. You'll see him quoted all over the media with with frequency. Um, so. My disagreement with, with, with Robbie is that I, I think that we are becoming a potluck nation. We're moving – we have now shifted paradigm fully away from the melting pot nation. And the idea of the melting pot is that there is kind of a base that you're melting into. And we are so multicultural now, right? Uh, pop culture is so multicultural. Athletics is so multicultural. Education in 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 places where it's done well is so multicultural that we're not dissolving identities into a standard base. We are contributing our dishes to a national feast. Now, I think that there are guidelines and rules around a potluck, right? Like don't don't bring things that are going to poison other people or that other people have serious allergies to. And I think part of the beauty of a potluck is that the group of people who are bringing dishes are kind of negotiating it together, 
right? There isn't like a conductor conducting a symphony as in one ethnic group who are the head of everything. It is a broad group of people who have to negotiate with each other. And I just think that that's, it's, it's, it's jazz, not, uh, not classical music. And guess what? America invents jazz. We can do this. We're going to take a few phone calls here. 312-923-9239 is the number. And Matt, you're on WBEZ talking religion with Ibu Patel. Yes, you keep forgetting the word male. You're talking about white Christians, and I believe it's the male white Christians that are fearful of losing their power. If you had more women in power, we wouldn't be having nearly this many problems. There are a lot of faiths that are male-dominated, and you talk about the Muslim faith in your book, the Catholic faith, obviously. Um, it's a male thing. Yeah, you know... Um there's much to be said on that, and and it's I'm not the one to do the saying. And one of the reasons for that is because I would rather tell a better story about where we're going. I would rather uh, imagine the negotiations of a delicious potluck where we all feast. I'd rather imagine the beauty of the jazz music we are all playing than, than uh, be the guy who's calling out all the enemies now. And I, I think that that's important work. It's just not who I am. How do you get men to share, though, the, the religious leadership in the, the, the United States? So, you know, I think about IFYC where probably two-thirds of our staff are female, um, uh, at least half the staff, at the at least half of the, the folks who are the senior leaders of the organization are women. And I just think to myself, boy, haven't we benefited a ton from this? And so if you think that uh, – that everybody benefits when a wide range of identities contribute, then you welcome those contributions. One of the trends in religion in the United States is that there is less religion. We've gone from being the the most faithy country in the world to one of the countries where we're watching our faith contributions drop like a rock. Um, how do how do people who are losing faith fit into this scenario that you're painting of of a potluck? They, they a lot of people look and say religion is the problem in this country. If the there was some statistic like sixty six percent of people think that religion is creating more problems than it solves. So at IFYC, we have a broad definition of of. Uh, of religion and worldview. And the language we use is, is uh, we want to nurture cooperation amongst people who orient around religion differently. And that orientations around religion range from atheist to Zoroastrian. Uh, and obviously, um, uh, quote-unquote traditional worldview communities, Catholics, Muslims, Jews, etc., are super important. And everybody else is super important also. The question we ask is, in a religiously diverse democracy where you have everybody from atheists to Zoroastrians, how do you nurture pluralism? And we define pluralism as respect for those diverse identities, relationships between those different communities, and a commitment to action for the common good. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald talking with Ibu Patel. We're talking about some of the ideas in his book, Out of Many Faiths. And Greg, you're on WBEZ. Hi, I really appreciate what you're saying. I like the idea of potluck, and I love jazz music, but it seems what the caller was saying that you don't want to answer is that the men want to sit at the table and be served by women, 
and now learn how to cook and play the music of women and play the, the recipes of women and let this be an experience where it's not just metaphors, but like, how do we get guys to recognize that by giving up your power, you're gaining so much more by listening. And it seems like the men right now are just terrified of letting go of power. So I think you just said it eloquently, and I'm happy to say that that's, that's the case in many circumstances. Um, uh, and I, I'm frankly not a big fan of, of, uh, of broad sweeping categories like the men or the white people or the, the Muslims. Um, uh, I just think in any category, there's a whole range of, of humanity. Um, there are patterns, no doubt, there are clearly institutional cultures. And I just think about how much my life has been enriched by the examples of Dorothy Day and Jane Addams and my grandmother, who were probably uh, my most important non-Muslim f- uh, faith heroes, except for my grandmother, of course, who's Muslim. Um, and so I would, I think the way that we inch towards a world defined more by pluralism and equity is by telling stories of the enrichment of a variety of identities. There is no doubt that there are a whole set of problems when it comes to racism, patriarchy, uh, homophobia, Islamophobia, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think that that we make better progress against those problems when we tell the story of a world where everyone can thrive in the kind of way that King did, in the kind of way that Jane Addams did, in the kind of way that Mandela did, in the kind of way that I think Obama did. Um, and that's, that's going to be the focus of my narrative. You've got a great section in the book where you break down what being – in America and being under Islamophobia pressure is doing to the Muslim community. Um, can you do a little of that, uh, break down what um, social Islam and uh, traditional Islam and how they're kind of melding together in this under this pressure? Sure. So, you know, one of uh, – one of the things I, I write about in, in Out of Many Fates is, is uh, how for many, many years, uh, the people who held power and uh, uh, in the Muslim community were the people who uh, were the most adept at interpreting Muslim tradition. Uh, and we're an intellectual tradition, right? So we, we're, it's interpretation of texts at the center of which is the Quran. It's the, it's the knowledge of these texts, et cetera, et cetera. These are really important people. And after 9-11, uh, because of the spread of Islamophobia, Part of what becomes important is people who are adept at interpreting the social experience of Muslims, people more like me. You know, I don't read the Quran in Arabic. I, I am not uh, fluent in, in Islamic classical texts. I have great respect for them. I have great respect for the people who interpret them. But I, uh, I am adept at, at, at interpreting the Muslim social experience, especially in light of the social experience of African-Americans, of Catholics, et cetera, et cetera. And so people like me find ourselves on public radio more often. And and during the Trump campaign, uh, that happens again. And there are Except this time, there were a whole set of people, uh, people like Aziz Ansari, Zara Nukbaksh, et cetera, Nurbaksh, et cetera, et cetera, who are – who are clear that they're they're really not connected to the religious dimensions of Islam at all, um, 
and put out art that uh, that is uh, in which that's evident. I think of Aziz Ansari's religion episode in Master of None, and yet they are shining light on the Muslim social experience in America. And I think that this is a really interesting challenge for the Muslim community, of, for, of which I have no like clear side. But uh, w- what do you do when uh, the center of the community for so many years was on interpreting the religious dimensions of the tradition? And now there's significant attention given to Muslims who are adept at, at interpreting the social experience and who uh, kind of thumb their nose at the religious dimensions. It's a fascinating sociological moment for the American Muslim community. I think that uh, there are parts of it that are very positive. I'm a big proponent of what I call big tent citizen Islam. The big tent is the notion that there are Muslims of of, of a whole variety within the tent, um, Shias and Sunnis, Sufis and Salafis, Iranians and Saudis, and and a wide variety of people of observance, right? So as long as you say the Shahada, there's no God but God, and the Prophet Muhammad is the Prophet of God. Uh, in my mind, that qualifies you as a Muslim. Um, and within that tent, there are interesting discussions about uh, about about what that means. But within the tent, we don't cast anybody outside of the tent unless they are involved in something that is a a clear violation of basic ethics, like the wanton murder of people, um, and that tent seeks to make a contribution on the American landscape. I think the best example of this is what the Inner City Muslim Action Network is doing under the leadership of of my friend Ramina Shashibi. So this is what American Muslims are coming to. This is this is kind of the place it's going. I think that that's right. And I think in some ways it mirrors American Catholicism and American Judaism. And the reason for that is because like with the immigration patterns of Catholics and Jews, they come from a variety of parts of the world. Uh, what they first do is they is they build institutions uh, to their kind of ethnic and theological interpretation of Catholicism and Judaism. And then when they experience anti-Semitism or anti-Catholicism, they recognize that banding together under the broad tent of Catholic or the broad tent of Jewish is good for them uh, and is a way to make a contribution to the nation. I think a similar process is happening with Muslims. Ibu Patel is the author of Out of Many Faiths, Religious Diversity, and The American Promise. He is the founder of the Interfaith Youth Corps. Great to talk with you, Ibu. Good seeing you. So good to be with you, Jerome. Thank you. Tomorrow we'll talk about the dangers that Mexican journalists face. Hope you can join us tomorrow for Worldview. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum, Julian Haida, and Galilee Abdullah. Thanks to Viviana Garcia Blanco for production assistance. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.